Well, good morning, church family. So glad to be with you. So glad to be opening the word of God with you. And I would uh, invite you to open to James chapter 2. We're going to be continuing in our study of James. James chapter 2, I'm going to read it for us. Now we're going to be looking at the first 13 verses. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of his kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak And so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Now in the fall of 1960, there was a political election that was well known and has long been uh, an interesting debate for political historians. It was uh, an election between Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy. And there's a lot of uh, interesting little facts about this election, but one of them was the debates. The debates of this election were a point of interest for a lot of people because for the first time in United States history, these debates would not just be radio broadcast, they'd be televised. And what was interesting was the outcome of these debates. For those that tuned into the radio broadcast, they thought Richard Nixon was the clear winner of the debates. But for the millions of people that watched on the television, they thought John F. Kennedy was the clear winner of the debates. What would cause such an outcome? The outcome was caused by sinful humans making sinful judgments about outward appearance of both of these men. 
You see, if you know, Richard Nixon, in the month leading up to this election, unfortunately had a knee infection that landed him in the hospital, and to add insult to injury, he ended up getting the flu the week before the election, so he was 20 pounds lighter than he was a month before. He looked sickly. And next to John F. Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, he looked like the pillar of health. And for those that watched via television, they made judgments and assumed that John F. Kennedy was the winner. And James, in our passage this morning, in James chapter two, he wants to zero in on this same topic. Because showing partiality or showing favoritism or making discriminations amongst people is a common thing. It's a thing as old as Genesis chapter three. If you look in the Old Testament, you can see when the Israelites, they were looking for a king, who was it that they wanted for their king? They wanted tall, dark, and handsome Saul. Or if you look in the New Testament, you can read in Acts chapter six, verse one, that there was Hebrew widows being cared for, yet Greek widows were being neglected in their care. And though this was unintentional, it was happening. Partiality was being shown. Favoritism was being shown in the body of Christ. And we look out at our world and we can see so many examples of people being partial to one another, people playing favorites, people discriminating against people. And James, and James 1, wants to instruct the early church And he wants them to know that faith doesn't play favorites. There is no place for favoritism in the church of Jesus Christ. Yes, the world has systems that play favorites. Yes, the world discriminates. Yes, the world is partial towards people. But this is not so for the Christian and for the church. And I think that James' instruction for us this morning is one that we need to take seriously because We could come to church, and it is a beautiful thing to look over the worship center on a Sunday morning and to see people from all different tribes and tongues with all different cultural backgrounds, all different skin colors, that the church of Jesus Christ is made up from people from all over the place. And we can look across our church, and we can assume partiality, that's not something that we struggle with. That is not something that is an issue for us And yet, so second nature to us, do we make judgments about people on their gender, on their clothing, on their riches or their lack thereof, on their skin color, on their education, on their intelligence, on the car that they drive, on the neighborhood they're from. We make judgments about people so, so regularly. And we can often chalk it up to it's just preference. We're just people that have preferences, and that's, that's not a bad thing. But James's instruction here is that these preferences that you think are going on in your church, they're not preferences, it's partiality. And it's serious, and it's sin. And verse one is the verse where the next 12 verses are rooted from, hang from. We need to understand this. He says, coming right out of chapter one, where he just instructed the church, really the theme, the foundation of this letter, to be doers of the word, not just hearers, deceiving yourselves. 
that would you know, church, the evidence that your faith shows in doing and being obedient to the word of God? If you don't see this, perhaps you're just a hearer, perhaps you're deceiving yourself. And it's out of this that he begins to instruct the church with various commands and imperatives. Various things that should evidence their faith in Christ or their lack of it. And he says, my brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The NASB, it actually translates this verse, don't hold your faith with an attitude of favoritism. Don't play favorites. And that is the thrust of James' message out of this text. Faith in Christ doesn't play favorites in the church. There is no place for it. And notice, he doesn't just say, hold your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He quantifies that. He, he gives the Lord this explanation. He says, the Lord of glory. With a sin like partiality where it is involving people showing glory to men, he wants to, again, bring to mind that the only person worthy of glory is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's amazing to think about. It's the Lord of glory who humbled himself, who left the throne of heaven. It was the Lord of glory that wasn't born in the presence of kings and queens and the rich. The Lord of glory was born in a manger. The Lord of glory didn't come to be served. He came to serve. The Lord of glory didn't get a crown, but he got a cross. The Lord of glory didn't get praise. He got punishment. And James's instruction is don't hold your faith in the Lord of glory, in this man, and play favorites. It is antithetical to gospel living. It is antithetical and completely opposite to someone who does the word. Faith doesn't play favorites. And we're gonna see five points out of this text where James is warning and instructing on the danger, on the seriousness of this sin. And at the end, he really gets to some good gospel hope. Some really good gospel hope for people that struggle with partiality with people that struggle with playing favorites. So let's look at our first point. James, if faith doesn't play favorites, he wants to note the display of favoritism. He says in verse two, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James gives this display, this illustration of the type of behavior that was going on in the early church. This was likely a hypothetical situation that he came up with, but was something that was similar to some of the behavior that was happening in the body of Christ. And he brings attention to this reality that faith doesn't play favorites, and he wants to use this illustration in his conclusion of favoritism within the church is in verse four. Have you not then made distinctions 
among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. When we play favorites in the body of Christ, we make ourselves judges with evil thoughts. It made me think of in Samuel, 1 Samuel, the temptation and the propensity of the human heart to be deceiving itself into playing favorites is so, so real and so, so subtle. Samuel the prophet, you can read in chapter 16 of the book, he's grieved. He's grieved over the fact that Saul, the first king, was turned away from God. And the Lord says to Samuel, I want you to go to the house of Jesse and I'm going to anoint a king after my own heart. And Samuel, he goes. And even Samuel, the temptation of his heart was to look at the outward appearance, the outward gain that a person could give. And this is what it says in 1 Samuel 16, 6 to 7, what the Lord says to him as he's tempted in this. Verse 6, it says, when he came, He looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. What a good thing that the Lord is not like us, looking at the heart. We often talk about many different attributes of God, right? We celebrate God's sovereignty. We celebrate God's omniscience, that he's all-knowing. We recognize God's omnipotence, that he's all-powerful. We recognize God's all-goodness. And there's another attribute that runs throughout scripture that is consistent in the Old Testament and the New Testament, something that is defining of God and that attribute that we often forget about that gets lost in the background of some of these other ones is that God is impartial. I love what Romans 2.11 says. It just spells it out for us. We couldn't, we couldn't get it any clearer. Romans 2.11, it says this, for God shows no partiality. A literal translation of partiality is to be no respecter of faces. God isn't swayed by looks. He isn't swayed by abilities. He isn't swayed by gifts. He isn't impressed by man. He shows no partiality. And James is saying here, that you are making distinctions, you are being partial, you are playing favorites, and when this happens in the church, you make yourself out to be a judge with evil thoughts. How many of us, we come to church and we think, I, I am not one to struggle with playing favorites. I, I don't play favorites in, in our church. I don't show partiality. I don't make distinctions among people How many of us have come into the church on a Sunday and there's someone that's part of our local body? We're we're glad they're here. We're glad they've come to church and are part of Hope Markham. But I don't really want to talk with them. I'd prefer to avoid them. I'd prefer 
to not have a relationship with them? How many of us are in small groups? And there's someone in our small group. We're glad they're part of a small group. We just wish it wasn't our small group. They're difficult. They're hard to love. You maybe don't get along with them. They're just from different worlds, a different cultural background. They don't dress like you. They don't sound like you. They don't have the same interests as you. And you play favorites. I think even the temptation for us is some of us were part of small groups, we're plugged in, and we've got our community of uh, Christian friends within the church, and we love that little bubble, and we don't really want to break out of that bubble. We just want to remain in our little clique, and we're thankful for these few brothers or sisters in Christ, and we love them, and that is a good thing. I don't want to discredit that, but we get so caught up in that that we have nothing to do with anyone else that a visitor comes in. Someone else will say hi to them. I don't think I'd get along with that person. We play favorites. And what we have become is judges with evil thoughts. James is saying this to this church and he's saying this to us. You, Christian, have become so unlike Christ. This is not Christ-like. So that's the display of favoritism. He wants to move into another section in verses five to seven, the dishonor of favoritism, the dishonor that inevitably follows when a church plays favorite, shows partiality, makes distinctions amongst itself. Look at verse five with me, five to seven. It says this, listen, my beloved brothers, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? I love how James starts this. Verse five, he says, listen, my beloved brothers, brothers, sisters, I want you to see how the Lord sees this type of behavior in your midst. And he he, he begins begins to describe how how this is seen. He's saying, you have taken this brother in the Lord. You've taken this sister in the Lord that maybe isn't materially rich, maybe has no money to their name, maybe is struggling to get by. This brother, this sister who loves the Lord, who the Lord has called and chosen to himself. You've taken this sheep from the chief shepherd's flock and you know what you've done. Verse six, you have dishonored the poor man. When we do this type of behavior, when we have this type of sin unchecked in our midst, in our hearts, it's dishonoring to one another. It does not please the Lord. And he goes on, he says, and let me get this straight. You've taken this man who is rich, who is a God-hater, who is a blasphemer, 
who has actually dragged you into court. You've taken this man who does not honor the name of Christ but dishonors it and you're elevating him? You are honoring him? When we play favorites in the church, it is dishonoring. And this was certainly an issue with the early church. Uh, If you're familiar with the early church, you know that it was primarily comprised of poor people, people that were neglected by society, people that society saw as subpar and dismissed. These type of people the Lord cares so greatly and dearly about. Do we? Do we? Or are we playing favorites that we honor and get to know and make friends with those that are like us, that have similar interests as us? Or are we dishonoring those that need the care of the body of Christ? Are we simply like a high school Right, all of us, we've probably been to high school, and you know what high school is like, right? The, the art kids are with the art kids, the music kids with the music kids, the math kids with the math kids, the troublemakers with the troublemakers. Is that our church? Are we like a corporate company where, you know, once a week we get together and we do our big corporate company meeting, but at the end we just go back to our divisions Are we just a group of Christians that on two hours we get together and we just hang out in our own groups? Older people with older people, singles with singles, young families with young families, just hanging with the people that are in our stage of life or are we seeking to care for and love all that are in our midst? having our pulse on who needs love, who needs prayer, who needs care within the body of Christ. This is what James is getting at. I remember during my college years, I did a lot of uh, like living in, the, in dorms. So if you've ever done this, uh, it makes for interesting living at times. And uh, often I was placed with people that I didn't know. Like I would, I'd get their names and on move-in day, you'd meet them for the first time. And near the end of my dorm living, one of my last years, I got roomed with an individual and I remember initially in my heart, in my mind, asking a lot of questions about this individual. I remember him showing up on moving day and he was in his pajamas And that was interesting. I remember thinking, I'm not sure I'm going to get along with this guy. He was on the shorter end. He was scruffy and unkept. Didn't look like he'd been taking care of himself. And I remember helping him. Uh, We were moving in and, you know, going to his room and getting to know him and seeing some of his, his hobbies. He's bringing out a lot of these different, like, figurines of I don't even know what they were and comics, and then he pulls out these huge slippers that were like cat feline slippers, and he's wearing these slippers in his pajama, and I remember in my heart just thinking, Lord, I am not going to get along with this guy at all. I have nothing in common with this guy. 
And I remember, to my shame, as the semester went on, this brother, he loved the Lord. Was he quirky? Yes. But man, did he love the Lord and did he have a heart for missions? Oh, yes, he did. And I remember a couple months later, really in my heart, the Lord just rebuked me and I went to this brother and I had to say, look, I, I made some assessments about you and I was way off. Would you forgive me? And I think we do that often, so subtly in our hearts, right? We come in and there's people, they're kind of dressed in a way where you're like, I'm not sure I want to get to know you. You, you kind of are a little odd or there's people that you just make into intuitive stomach judgments about and we're wrong. I'm sure all of us have stories where we have met people and been forced into a situation and we got to know that person. We actually find out, man, this brother, this sister, they're actually pretty great. They actually love the Lord really inspirationally. And yet we never learn. We always go with our intuitive thoughts about people. And James is saying it's dishonoring. It is dishonoring. It does not reveal and evidence someone who is doing the word, someone who has a faith in Jesus Christ that has been transformed by the gospel. You are not looking at people with all dignity and honor and value when you make partial favoritism distinctions among them. Where do we go from here? How do we actually shake this sinful tendency that we have? How are believers to live? And this is where James, he crescendos in verse eight. He gives the answer to favoritism. He wants this church to understand how they are to actually live as believers, as Christians who are doing the word. And he says this in verse eight. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. This is the answer to favoritism. And James's answer is this. Love one another. Love one another. In fact, he uses this term, fulfilling the royal law. I thought we were under grace. We're not under law anymore. In fact, this royal law isn't just a royal law that we are to fulfill. He says it's scripture, that this royal law has scriptural authority and weight that we need to heed. And then he quotes a verse that is all too familiar to us. The words that Jesus Christ himself shared, the words that are from the Mosaic law in Leviticus. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. These words actually originate from Leviticus 19, 15 and 18. Let me read Leviticus 19, 15. Again, this is where Moses, he, he has the Levitical law. He's giving it to the people. It says this, Leviticus 19, 15, do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. 
Leviticus 19.15 says that in three verses later, in the same context, it says this, Leviticus 19 verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, again, coming back to the context of this letter, James is speaking to Jewish Christians. This is the dispersion. When he would write this, their ears would perk up. These were good Jews that would have known the Levitical law, and they would have thought of these things. And he says the royal law, though, as Christians, how are we to relate to the law? Hasn't Jesus Christ fulfilled the law for us? Yes. Yes, he has. We couldn't do it. But he uses this term, the royal law. And the royal law is the one that Jesus has given us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That we are still called to obey these words that Jesus Christ has given us. We need to ask, how do we actually love our neighbors? How do you actually do that? We say that. We know Jesus has said it. We know the word of God teaches it. We see it throughout the pages of scripture, the calling to love one another, to stand out from the world, to not be partial, to not play favorites, to actually love one another. How do we do that? We need to ask, how do we love ourselves? How do you love yourself? We don't love ourselves with an emotional kind of Uh, spicy love as the world portrays it, right? We love ourselves with a loving care. All of us this morning, we woke up, we probably went to the washroom and we looked in the mirror and maybe you were like, ugh. But you still brushed your teeth, you still combed your hair, you still cared for yourself. We don't always love ourselves because we intrinsically are in love with ourselves, sometimes we, it's hard. We, we take care of ourselves, it's, it's difficult, yet we do it. So there's an obligation that we have to ourselves that we consistently obey. And James is saying this, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. And notice he says this, as you love your neighbor, you are doing well. You are obeying that royal law. Partiality will not be present. Partiality will not have its day in the church when you're doing this. This is the type of attitude that we need to have as we're loving one another. There is a care, there is an interest. And I think it's important to note that we also need to know how we are loved. We need to know how we are loved by Jesus Christ, by God himself. And when we really understand that, when we understand our identity in Christ and the love that Christ has for us, surely we can do what he has called us to do, to love one another as he has loved us, as 1 John says. So are you going to say hi to someone maybe you wouldn't say hi to? Are you going to invite that person over for lunch that maybe you wouldn't typically invite over for lunch? Are you going to get to know and care for those that are hurting and struggling even when it's uncomfortable. This is what it means to love one another. And James, he goes on into our next point and he wants to note the danger of favoritism. He wants to hammer home 
to these early Christians and to us the seriousness of this sin. It is subtle, it is natural to our flesh to play favorites and he wants this church and he wants our church to know the seriousness of partiality and favoritism. Let's look, verse nine to 11, he says this. He says, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. What's the danger of favoritism? It is sin. In James, he highlights the seriousness of this sin by talking about the law. And he uses two examples, adultery and murder. Sins that all of us would agree are serious. He didn't have to convince these people the seriousness of this sin, but often favoritism, partiality, we don't think that's a big deal. James is saying it is a big deal that if you think you can handpick what laws you want to obey, what laws are serious and what laws aren't. He's saying when you break the law of God, you know what that makes you? It makes you a transgressor. It makes you a law breaker. And those that break the law of God are going to have to face the punishment of God. Every sin delivers us into being transgressors and being people that are under the judgment of God, his righteous judgment. This is the danger, partiality. But when God saves us, when Jesus Christ saves us, if you have been saved by Jesus Christ, if you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ alone, you know what? You have a new relationship to the law. You have a new relationship to the law, that the law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He has fulfilled its demands. And you know what? No matter how hard you try to be a good person or a righteous person and fulfill the law, You can't. This is good news that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law for us. No matter how hard you try, you can't do it. And our new relationship to the law begins. In fact, verse 12, he speaks of this new relationship that Christians have to the law. As he talked about the royal law in verse 8, verse 12, it says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. I love that. What a, what a kind of opposite way to, to describe the law. When we think of law, we think of bondage. We think of our rights being restricted. We think of obligation. And he uses this term, law of liberty, law of freedom. And he says, you know, Partiality is sinful, favoritism is sinful, and when you do this, you become a transgressor. But you know what, church? 
If you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ alone, you can be a doer of the word. You can speak and you can act as you are to be judged on the, under the law of liberty, that you can live your life in a manner that honors God and obeys his word and fulfills the law of liberty, that what James is saying is you have the freedom to obey that royal law. You have the freedom and the ability to live out and obey the law of liberty, that law that Jesus Christ has given us, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, to love our neighbor as ourself. We don't have to obey the Levitical law, but we are able to obey that law now. And how can we obey that law? Not in a legalistic way, not in a pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of way. You have the spirit of God living within you that you can actually obey this law of liberty. You can fulfill the royal law. This is what James is getting at in this book, that you can be a doer of the word and you can show evidence of your true faith. Why can you do this? You can obey the word of God because you have the spirit of God and you can do it all to the glory of God. How amazing is this? You don't have to play favorites anymore. You don't have to be tempted to be partial and discriminate amongst yourselves. You are people with the spirit of God. Live like it. Know that you can do it. And James, he gives us one last, final, final thing about favoritism. Final note of seriousness about favoritism. Verse 13 he says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. That is a sobering thing to read. James gives us the drive to avoid favoritism. He wants this church of believers, he wants them to know the motivation, the drive that they can have in their hearts to avoid this type of sin. In fact, he uses this term, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown mercy. He is saying that if you are not showing mercy to certain kinds of people, you know what's probably gone on. You have never been shown mercy by the hand of God. You have not known the mercy of God if you are not showing mercy to other people. That's a hard thing to hear from God's word. Jesus, he says something similar at the end of the Lord's prayer in Matthew chapter six. He says, if you forgive, you will be forgiven. But if you do not forgive others, do not expect that you will be forgiven. Are you one that shows mercy? Now, he's talking about the law. He's talking about being a transgressor. And now he's talking about mercy. And I want to speak to the one who has not cast themselves upon the mercy of God. Let's be clear. So we all know Every single one of us, we need the mercy of God on judgment day. You need this mercy. You have no leg to stand on on judgment day if you do not have the mercy of God. You need to receive the mercy of God so that you do not face the judgment of God. Perhaps you're in here and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. You have not acknowledged that you are a transgressor of the law. 
that you think you're a good person. I haven't killed anyone. I haven't committed adultery. I don't lie very much. But you are one who has a heart that plays favorites all the time. You're showing partiality. You're making discriminations. And James here, he's clear, that is sin. You are a transgressor. You are a lawbreaker. And the judgment of God is coming. And you need mercy. Cast yourself upon the mercy of God. And perhaps for some of us, we've, as James has said, we are self-deceived. We're hearers of the word, but this, this type of living does not characterize us at all. We're not ones to show mercy. We're not ones to be doers of the word. And I want to warn you as James warns this church, perhaps you have never been shown the mercy of God that as you live this way, you are evidencing a lack of faith in Christ and you need to turn to the mercy of God. And I wanna end today looking at four words that James ends with. See, the temptation as we go through the book of James is to get really caught up in legalist thinking, right? James is demanding we need to live this way. And if we're not, then I'm... I'm an unbeliever and we can get down on ourselves and there's a real sense in which James is saying soberingly, you need to think about and examine your life and you need to see, do you see any fruit of salvation? Do you see a life changed? And if you don't, you need to be warned. Maybe you're deceived and you need to cast yourself upon the gospel of Jesus Christ and here he ends with some gospel hope. Because certainly, He is not advocating that we need to show mercy on some kind of conditional way so we can be shown mercy. Our ability to show mercy is poor in the face of God. Certainly that doesn't earn mercy. And this is what he says. He says mercy triumphs over judgment. I love that word triumph. In fact, throughout the New Testament, it uses that word and it's often translated as boasts. It boasts over the judgment of God. Whose mercy triumphs over judgment? It is the mercy of God that triumphs over the judgment of God. And he's saying this is the hope that we have. This is the hope that we have, church. This is the hope that we can hold on to. He doesn't want us to self-question. He doesn't want us to wonder He's saying, with certainty, you can know that on judgment day, you will be shown mercy if you've received the mercy of God. We have been shown the greatest act of mercy. You and I were rebels. Ephesians 2 says we were dead in our sin, that it is a miraculous work of God that he would save us. I heard one preacher say, you know how miraculous it is when someone gets saved? It's as if you and I, if we were to go down to the morgue and we walked into the morgue and we preached to dead bodies and they came to life, that's exactly what's happening when someone believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we were dead in our sins. When you're dead, you don't have the ability to choose God. It is a divine act of God and his mercy. Church, would we not be a group of Christians on Sundays that come together for two hours, we stick with our groups, we play favorites, and then we go about our weeks? 
that if we have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, if our faith is in the Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory, we're gonna have a faith that leads us to not playing favorites. We're gonna have a faith that seeks to fulfill the royal law, to love others, to live out that law of liberty and do it all for the glory of God. Let us close in prayer. Father in heaven, we confess, Lord, that our hearts are evil and deceptive and deceiving. And this specific sin of partiality or favoritism, Lord, it is so subtle and it is so serious and it is so dangerous to the fellowship of the church, to our own hearts. It leads us astray. God, would you open our eyes to it? Would we acknowledge and confess that to you as James 5 says, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. Lord, would we not hold back? Would we acknowledge this sin that so closely clings and entangles us and dishonors our brothers and our sisters in Christ and displeases you? God, would we not be a church that walks in this way? Would we be a church that is known for our love for one another and ultimately our love for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the Lord of glory. We pray this in his name.